We try to start off our service with a few questions every Sunday. And so today's kind of a fun question. I'd love for you to just kind of, whoever you're with, but make sure no one's left out, you know, look around the room. Um, but what's the most awkward rejection that you've seen, right? Um, so I have a few really good stories. Um, and then what's the most romantic proposal that you've seen? Katie and Patrick aren't here, so you don't have to feel pressure to, you know, <laughs> use them as their example. But I'll give you guys like two or three minutes. Just go ahead and get with the person uh, next to you, maybe uh, groups of twos or threes. I know, again, if you're new, it's a little awkward, but just stare at someone until they invite you in, all right? All right, you guys have three minutes. All right, thank you guys for sharing. This is one of my favorite uh, proposals of all time. So let's see, this guy is uh, at a Rockets game. I don't know if you guys have seen this. And at halftime, he's like proposing to this girl, right? Uh, I took snaps of it. Let's see, so cute. And then next slide. <laughs> Why is my clicker working? It never works. Next, uh, oh, oh, yeah, no, no, oh, oh, there it is. So that's, that's the expression you want to see. Uh, Mitchell, could you help me? Next slide. So then she starts walking away, and then, and then she goes into a full-on sprint, which is always sad. But it's a happy ending because the bear comforts him, and then uh, he's a little embarrassed, um, and then... He gives him a beer. So, so everything's okay. Everything's okay because he got a beer. Um, you know, when I think about whether it's the most awkward proposal or the worst rejection or the most romantic one, it really doesn't have to do necessarily with the circumstance or with the person posing the question. It, it really has to do with the person receiving. If you think about it, this could have been great if she said yes, right? If she cried and danced and took the ring, it would have been like a really romantic, epic proposal. But instead, he gets comforted by a beer, uh, a bear, and you know, like, uh, and a beer, a bear and a beer, which is all, which is everything we could ever ask for when we get rejected. You know, I, I also think about how when someone displays their love in such a radical way, that it really pushes for a response. Um, you know, when you propose to someone or you ask someone to be your best friend or you, or you DTR, it, it kind of puts them in this position, right, where it's like they have to make a choice. And the more radical the gesture, the more radical the rejection or the more epic the, the acceptance. And, and, you, and there's that degree of like, the more risk you take, the, more, the better story you have, or the more shame the bear feels for you. And, um, and, and when, when you go out on a limb like that, it's, it also becomes binary. Either they say yes, and they kind of rise to that level of commitment, and then there's everything else, right? If, if I asked Nina to marry me, and she said, let's be friends, <laughs> even if she meant let's be friends, there'd be such a dissonance between what I'm asking and expressing and what she's willing to give that it still, 
it's still a hardcore rejection. Whereas if I ask any of you guys to be friends and you said yes, it would be great. So the, the degree in which we ask, the degree in which we love, the degree in which we display our love demands some type of response that is equivalent. And I think that's where the awkwardness comes in. When we don't know what to say or we're not sure if we can actually do what they're asking for, if we can love the way they're loving us. And I hope that as we look at the cross, we would feel that tension, that we would sit back and think about what a display it was for Jesus to die on the cross for us. Uh, If you look at the next slide, Romans chapter 5, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We think about the greatest proposals. We think about the best prom asks. And they pale in comparison to the cross. I mean, this was, it was scandalous. The way that God loved us, the way that he sacrificed for us, the sacrifice, the shamelessness, it demands a response. It should make us awkward, but sometimes it doesn't, right? We've heard it too many times, and we can just kind of feel inoculated. But I hope that, I hope that this morning it would draw us, it would make us like sit there and ask, can I love and receive this kind of love? Because the kind of love Jesus is expressing is like, a father and son who goes on a road trip with their windows down. And a bee flies in, and and it's usually okay, but both of them are deathly allergic to bees. And so they're watching it, they're trying to wave it down, but it lands on his son, so he just holds it in his hand until he takes the sting. God's love for us is like two friends going scuba diving in the deep sea, in in the caves, and one of their oxygen tanks breaks. And the other friend says, take mine. I want you to make it. His love is like a mom who's trapped in her apartment, and fire is just spreading throughout the room, and she cradles her baby and holds it, and takes the burns and the scars instead of her daughter. His love is like a group of soldiers that went through boot camp and then to Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and they became brothers. And then there's a grenade that drops on the floor in front of them and so he dives on top of it. You know, our sin, it's like that deadly bee sting. It's like running out of oxygen. It's like being trapped by fire It's like a live grenade that falls on our feet, and Jesus takes it. He takes the accusations and remains silent. He takes the nails on his hands and his feet. He takes the lashes and beatings on his back, and he takes it for us. And I wonder if it causes us to respond 
if you look at this narrative, we're just walking through the book of John, and in John chapter 19, our next slide, we see how the Jews respond to Jesus. Then we see how the soldiers respond to him. And then we see the disciples' response. And all of them inform us of, I think they all kind of get it, because they all do something. Um, they all respond in kind of a radical way. The soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went to the place of the skull where they crucified him. With him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Crucifixion is the most brutal way to execute someone. The Roman Empire used this as a form of, of threat. And they could walk into um, a, a base or a bunker and there's historical accounts where they'll threaten to crucify people and everyone just walks out and surrenders. Um, nails are driven through the person's wrists or hands across a beam. And then the, horizontal, the vertical beam, their ankles, a nail is driven through. And as they hang there, the shoulder blades uh, give out. So they're depending on their ankles to hold up their weight. But as they bleed and as Jesus was being whipped, um, their organs start to fail, the lungs start to fill with blood, and for each breath, they have to press against the nails on their feet in order to breathe. And this is God's display of love for us. It's him pulling together the evil of our sin and his justice with his compassion towards us and how much he wants us to be family. So Pilate has a notice prepared and fastens it to the cross. It reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Don't write, do not write the king of the Jews, but write that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written I have written. You know, the Jews hated Jesus. And even in the previous uh, passage, we have them do the most ironic thing. They choose Caesar as their king. You know, if you look at the whole Old Testament, it's, it's really summarized as God being king over Israel. And now that God's come to earth in the form of a man, they reject him for their oppressor. They want that system they want that kingdom where you earn your way to the top, where you hold on to power, where you oppress others. They don't want a king that is about sacrifice and compassion and washing feet. And I wonder what kind of king we worship and what kind of king we give our allegiance to. Because the quickest way to hate Jesus is to serve two masters, right? He tells that to his disciples, if you serve two masters, you'll hate one and love the other. You can't serve both God and money. And so some people think that hating Jesus means delving into sin. Other people feel like hating Jesus means slowly walking away from church. But hating Jesus, the quickest way to do it is to serve two masters. And the Jews did that. They served themselves. They served their fame. They served their wealth. They served their position. And they hated and crucified Jesus. 
And when we look at our Christian faith, do we respond with serving two masters? Serving this guy or girl we're infatuated with? Serving um, our suburban dreams? Serving money or our career or our profession? And trying to also serve God, but in the end, um, hating him. Then we have the response of the soldiers. <clears throat> when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, clothes and divided them into four shares, each one of them with the undergarments remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened so that the scriptures might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. When you look at this scene, we see the cold reaction of the soldiers. They've seen crucifixions before. They've been in war and so this is just another guy dying on the cross, bleeding to death. And they're willing to play games right in front of him uh, for his clothes, to roll dice, to draw lots. And it's this kind of cold, withdrawn apathy in which the soldiers respond to Jesus. And to be honest, I can find myself here sometimes. I can hear the gospel and have it just mean nothing because I've heard it so many times. I can sing the word cross and think about my laundry. You know, I grew up at church and it's easy to have the cross just kind of sit there as I'm playing games. Do you feel like that sometimes? You've been to church so much, you've heard about the cross so often, you just, it just becomes part of your necklace or it becomes a word that you say. And the scandalousness, the power, the shamelessness, the shameless love of the cross just doesn't grip you anymore. It doesn't demand a response. It doesn't make you, um, it doesn't wreck you. It's just part of being Christian. You know it. Um, and that's kind of where the soldiers are at. They're, they're kind of, they're cold. Um, it means nothing to them. And I think we can get there as well. But we see how the disciples love him, how they respond to him. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister. His mother's Mary, his mother's sister is um, Elizabeth. Mary, the, the wife of Culpus, we know nothing about her. Um, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, the disciple whom he loves standing by, nearby, he said to her, Woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. You know, Jesus does something that I've never done. He was in extreme pain. I think when I'm in pain, my whole life wraps around me. I become completely blind to everyone else. But Jesus, in his greatest moments of pain, looks out and cares for another person. He 
cares for his mom and makes sure she's taken care of. And in this whole journey of pain, he's looking at all of us and he's caring for us that instead of turning inward, he continues to fight to look for our faces in the crowd, for his disciples, for these women who weep for him. He looked at the soldiers that nailed him and he said, forgive them. He looked at the man next to him and said, you'll be with me in paradise. And now he looks at his mom and he makes sure she has a home and a family. I think one of the most radical responses we can have at the cross of Jesus is hearing and being John who sees the sacrifice of his king and his hero and emulates that toward the people around him. You know, if, if we are captured by the love of Christ, we will look outward like he did. We will worship him by emulating him and say, even in my pain, how can I minister and love the people around me? How can I not turn inward? I want to be like this Savior and this King. He gives this commandment over and over again, but we don't see it as clearly as we do um, than on the cross. He says, my commandment is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay his life down for his friends. What, a, what an amazing hero who speaks the words and then lives them out. Um, you know, he says, there's no greater love than, than to sacrifice. Um, I think about how hard it is for God to sacrifice for us. You know, like if I gave you um, $4,000 uh, or if I, you know, when I bought Nina her ring, I emptied out my bank account. And that was sacrificial, right? Because I, I gave her like all of my earnings. But God can't give us anything and sacrifice. He owns it all. Right? So if I'm like a billionaire and I give Nina her ring, it would be like, oh, that's nice. But you didn't really sacrifice. Man, God, God sacrificed for us. And it was kind of creative for him to lay down his life, him to take on human flesh, to lay down his life for our sins. And then he calls us to do that for each other. And then there's Matthew 26. I, I think at the cross, when we respond well, when we don't reject him, we love others, but we also love Jesus. Verse 26 is amazing. It's coupling a story with the gospel. Like, what should be preached with the gospel? Not many things, but this, Jesus says this should be. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus is saying this story should be coupled with the gospel story. Mary walks into a room of men where women just don't belong, but she knows Jesus well enough to set his feet, even in the awkwardness. And then she puts myrrh over his, over his feet, and myrrh was like the most expensive thing 
anyone could own at the time. It was for Mary, her life in a bottle. It was all of the chores that she had done, all of the laundry she had washed, all of her babysitting, all of her Etsy crafts saved up into one bottle of myrrh because it was $30,000 and it was her future. It was all of her past work in a bottle and it was all of her future and her hopes encapsulated as well where one day she would meet her husband who would love her and bring her in and she would pour out this myrrh on their wedding night as they solidified their marriage. But here she gives this extravagant gift to Jesus. Here she comes to him and she says, here's my life. Not many people came to Jesus with their life. You know, people saw him as teacher and came to him with their questions. People saw him as healer and came to them, came to him with their sick. People saw him as a miracle worker, as an entertainer, and they came to him looking to be entertained. But Mary saw Jesus as Lord. Mary saw Jesus as God. Mary saw Jesus as someone who radically loved her. And she said, I love you as well. Here's my life. I hope that today, when we look at the cross, that it would demand a response from us. If someone proposed to you, it demands a response. And I think we can live a Christian life without properly responding to the love, to the proposal, to the cross of Jesus. And if we don't respond, we're just the soldier who plays games at the cross. If we don't respond, we just start serving another master and we fall into the system and the kingdom of Caesar. But when we really sit and, and look at the cross and say, man, this is scandalous. This is, this is shameless. This is radical love. It demands our lives. It demands Mary's response of worship. And that's why it says that wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the world, and, and today, 2,000 years later in Fullerton, what she has done will be told in memory of her because she responds to the cross. So how are you responding to the radical love of Jesus? And I don't think that means like selling everything and being a missionary. It might mean that, but I, I don't think it means what we do. I think it means loving God, like really loving Him, not just going through the motions, not just being religious, but at the end of the day, it's like He loves you a lot. He died for you. And what are you going to do about that? Are you going to open up your heart to say, God, I'm going to love you as well? Or will you, or do you just want to shake hands and be friends? Father, we come to you this morning and I hope that our whole Christian life would boil down to gazing at the cross and being 
moved by your love. Father, that as we um, just sit with how much you care about us, with how you sacrifice yourself for us, I pray that we would, that it would grip our hearts again. And that it would demand us to respond in an honest way. That you can't, <laughs> you can't, be proposed to and feel like saying, let's just be friends, we'll be okay. You can't get proposed to and say, oh, let's just go on a coffee date on Tuesday. Like those, it just doesn't work. And I hope that those things won't work with you, God. Because we can, we can get, lie to ourselves and feel like it does. I can do that. But I pray that today as we take communion, as we think about the blood that was shed for us, your body that was broken, I pray that we would respond like Mary. That we would pour out our love and our affection and our life to you. And that we would, we would receive your love. All of it. In Jesus' name.